Thank you, Lord, that you're here to meet us, to fill us today. Lord, we really do in this come here with nothing, Lord. Um, we bring ourselves, and you value that, and that's what you cherish, Lord. And, and yet, Lord, like, the, like the, one of the characters in the, in the story we're going to read about today, Lord, came empty and empty-handed and felt, I'm sure, worthless and empty. And yet, Lord, it's just in those places, Lord, where you meet us. You're so good to us, Lord. I pray that anyone who has come into this room today, Lord, who feels empty-handed, that they would be affirmed and they would be encouraged knowing that they're just in that place where you can meet them and to fill them. Fill us, Lord, today. Speak to our hearts today. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's go ahead and roll the video as you're seated. We want to acknowledge all the women we're blessed to know. We rejoice over you, for your strength, your wisdom, your strong love, and your beautiful faith. Whether today is a celebration for you or a day of quiet reflection and healing, we're thinking of all of you. If you gave birth this year to your first child, our joy overflows and we celebrate with you. If you adopted a child this year or became a foster parent, we rejoice with you and we want to honor you in your commitment to changing the lives of children. If you continue to struggle with infertility, we are hoping with you and holding your hand in prayer. If you are exhausted and feeling underappreciated for all you do for a house full of kids, we applaud you. We love you and we appreciate you more than you can ever imagine. And if you lost a child this year to death or miscarriage, we weep and mourn with you. And if your child is lost to addiction or to the world, we hurt with you and we join you in putting our hope in the one who brings prodigals home. If you live with painful memories of your mom, we pray that you will find in a spiritual mother all that you never had from a birth mom. And if you're one of those amazing spiritual moms, we thank you for stepping up and being there when others couldn't. If you're experiencing an empty nest for the first time this year, we walk with you in this new season and are excited about the next chapter God has planned for you. If you're single, we celebrate your strength beauty and individuality, and join with you in praying for the desires of your heart. If you're a single mom and wonder if you have the physical energy and financial resources to raise and provide for your child or children, we want to help you, and we will. And if you're pregnant for the first time, we prayerfully anticipate with you the joyful birth of a healthy child. And to all the special women on this Mother's Day, rest and delight in knowing that we are thankful for you and we celebrate each and every one of you. Well, Tim and I chose this video clip because we love that it does highlight and 
uh, a firm all women um, where we lived for 20 years in Tajikistan and Turkey. There was International Women's Day. It's on the 8th of March, so we missed it. But a lot of a lot of countries overseas celebrate it. And if you are female in the house today, could you stand up and come forward? Jeff is on this side with a basket. Tim is on this side with a basket. And we have a gift for you. Because uh, if you're not a mother, you have a mother. Unless you were hatched, and that's OK, too. Uh, we love the hatchlings as well. And uh, we just want to give you a little something and let you know that we, we love you and we are praying for you. Um, there are tricky seasons in all of womanhood. So we're standing with you and loving you through them. Looks like we have more women on the left side of the house than the right side of the house somehow. <laughs> all right, let's give them a hand. As they head, yeah, you're welcome. As they head back to their seats, you can open up to the book of Ruth. We're looking at a, a small book of the Bible today. We're going to study the whole entire book, every single verse, in the next 25 minutes. Uh, not really. We're going to look at this story and I do encourage you to read it, read it a few times this last week. It's fun. Opportunities like this give, give me a chance, gave us a chance to really dig into this beautiful story here. And the, the Bible is stories, things that really happened, but stories that are in there for a reason. And they weave together into the, the big story too, that we'll get to. But the interesting part about Ruth is the beginning, it begins with an ending. So there's a lot of endings here at the start. Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion had also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband." So that's all of her actual relatives gone now. Verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, so she's still in Moab, but she heard that back in Bethlehem things were okay now, the famine was over. So she heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. 
So the endings, again, we're starting with those, and this slide is showing you that the print is gonna be much too small, I, I understand for most of us to read, but I just wanted you to see this big chunk of endings. There's seven large ones, but within each one of those is a whole lot of loss. I'll just read them off real quick because I know you can't see the slide, but there's famine, which is loss of livelihood, security, hopes and dreams. That was back in Bethlehem. That was their land. That was how their family was going to carry on from generation to generation. But famine wiped that out. The move to Moab initially. It's a whole new country, whole new everything. Loss of friends, extended family, faith, community, identity, connectedness. They left their Jewish community to move to a foreign country where they worshiped other gods, not the true God. The death of Elimelech then, that's the loss of security, provision, a future for Naomi, protection, all that. Then both of her sons married Moabite women. And this I think is key too because a death, when somebody dies, we recognize that as a loss, right? A wedding or marriage, we don't always recognize as loss but there are losses there. In this case, both of her sons married Moabite women and they were forbidden to marry Moabite women because they were Jews. So there was the grief that came along with the choices that her sons made and, and what that would mean for their family. So loss of identity perhaps, loss of honor, loss of what Naomi's hopes and dreams were that her sons hopefully would have married Jewish women. The death of both of the sons, Malon and Kilion, that would have been loss of potential lineage. There hadn't been any kids born yet. Loss of provision, safety, hopes, dreams, all of that's wrapped up in that too. So no kids, now she's a widow, now she has no son, so there's no really hope for the family line to continue. And then she says, well, might as well move back to Bethlehem, so now we're going back to the place we came from, but you've got to, you know, or we've got to imagine that after 10 years has passed, Things have changed in Bethlehem, and back at the ranch doesn't look like back at the ranch used to look, right? So she's returning empty-handed, loss of community again, because they had built community in Moab, and identity and honor, and just going, going home, back home, with nothing. And so as I reflected on this and just looked at that package, it's six short verses but we could spend a lot of time looking at all that Naomi lost over the course of those 10 years. It's written in six verses, but again, it's, the, it's a, a long period of time with a lot packed in there. And I was reflecting on grief and how that would have most likely looked for her. And as a, as a culture, U.S. culture, let's say, I don't feel like we grieve well. I don't feel like we do a, a really great job of that. And I say that as a person who for 20 years was outside of that and saw something else. So I didn't know any different when I lived here that, you know, when somebody dies, what do we do? We go to the funeral um, and tears are okay there and, and saying kind words about that person and maybe the, the weeks leading up to the funeral. But it's sort of this idea that, you know, after that, like dry your tears and buck up and, and move on and stop grieving, right? We have this really short cycle of grief, let's say, that's expected of us. 
but where we lived, uh, Muslim culture, uh, what they do is the whole first three days after somebody dies, everybody's together, and it's all about crying and actual wailing and food. So it's just three days straight of wailing, crying, and eating together, which means it's very intense, and the first couple times we did this, uh, it will knock your socks off because it's just like emotionally so draining, but it means in your grief, you're not alone. So whatever you're feeling during those first days, you have somebody with you, and you're not hungry because people are bringing food by the boatload. First three days, then seven days, again, everybody gathers, same thing. Lots of food, lots of tears, lots of wailing. 40 days, same thing. And then at the one year anniversary and every one year anniversary after that. And what I think is good about this, I think there's a lot of good things about this custom. Again, it's a Muslim people group, but this is their cultural custom. This is part of their culture. And I think it's good because the, the cycles of grief are happening for different people at different rates, but it just means that we get to kind of roll through them together. Again, we're not alone, we're not hungry, we're not feeling like I'm the only one still grieving because we're with a community of people that are still grieving as well. So I, I love that about Taji culture, and I just know that you know Jewish culture is more like that in that Naomi was grieving all of these losses and she had some community in Moab, but I kind of feel like she wanted to grieve her losses and needed to grieve her losses with her Jewish community. And that was part of her saying, hey, let's head back to, to Bethlehem. The other thing about grief is I feel like um, that our, our hearts and souls are containers. And so when there is a lot of grief, like we look at that, that big long list um, that was up there before, and we just see if Naomi was holding on to all that and not crying that out and praying that out and uh, talking that out and doing whatever she needed to with her grief and she just held on to all that, then she would have been full to overflowing, which actually we, we know that she was in some senses because she said, you know, go ahead and call me bitter. She said, I'm changing my name now. And the meaning was bitter because she's saying, that's, that's what I am. That's how bad I'm hurting right now. But in that, you know, even, hey, call me, call me Mara, she was saying, I'm hurting and letting other people join her um, in her pain. So I just say, you know, whatever we need to do that, I think, um, you know, I say sweat it out, paint it out, write it out, pray it out, talk it out, whatever you need to do, whatever we need to do to get that grief out. I love the Psalms, especially the first about 30 chapters. I think I got stuck reading the first 33, 30 chapters of Psalms for about a year at one point in time. I just kept going again, again, again. And the psalmist saying, you know, my soul is hurting. You know, my soul is downcast. He's saying, I don't get what's happening here. He's putting into words the kind of things that I couldn't, I didn't have words for. I felt it here, but I didn't have words for it. And the psalmist does that for us. The, um, this list of reflection questions is just something for you to kind of take into the day and week. But it's really good, I think, if we can take time to think through significant endings in our lives. And 
um, when we have experienced grief and loss, what does that look like? Did we recognize the impact? Did we allow time for mourning or do we need to take more time, make more time for mourning? And then did the ending set a transition in motion? And as we know, they often, um, endings often lead to some kind of transition, some kind of choices. And Tim's going to come and continue with that. Yeah, so endings um, are great opportunities to uh, reevaluate. Um, endings off, often plunge us into a transition in some, in some way, right? So this was Ruth and Naomi's ending, and what does that transition look like? So um, the choices that we make in transition seasons are only as good as our value system, right? What, what we feel is important to us. And that, that's why transition and when things end is a great time to look at what do we value most? Because some changes are on the way. How am I gonna, how am I gonna be in a place to receive all the good things God has for me in that next season? So we ask ourselves, what's most important to me? How does that align with God's word? And as we read on here um, in the book of Ruth, starting with, chap uh, again, still in chapter 1, verse 14, uh, Ruth had some choices to make. And uh, so they're on, they're, they're, they've made the decision to go back to Bethlehem, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And at some point, it's funny because it says that they set off on the path back to Bethlehem. But at some point, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, Go back to your home. Go back to those that your ancestors. Go back there. And um, why should you go with me? Again, like Eve was saying, I'm bitter. I'm, I've had a bitter life, a bitter experience. Why stay? So it's interesting. The responses here at this, uh, starting with verse 14, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So we see there's some things here that motivated Ruth's choice in going with her mother-in-law instead of back to her home, back to her family. Um, the odds were stacked against her in all of this, and yet she chose to cling to her mother-in-law. And um, number one, Ruth's choice was relationship-centered. It was based on relationships. We go back to values again, right? What, what's most important? Well, for Ruth, that relationship was important, that relationship with her mother-in-law. And, and let's not forget Naomi's choice, too. And, and uh, in a culture like this, um, and, and where we served for many years in Central Asia, the, 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 the bride-to-be and uh, future daughter-in-law after the, the marriage always goes to live with the son's family. And that's parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, 
everybody in extended family. So if you can imagine the family dynamics there, and, uh, and so the daughter-in-law always goes to live with, with, and basically becomes a servant in that household, and, most, and much of the time uh, is, is not valued, their re- opinions aren't asked for or accepted or respected. Uh, there's a lot about being a daughter-in-law in that culture that is really, really hard. And it's rare to find a mother-in-law that accepts and loves her daughter-in-law the way Naomi did. And I, so I believe we have to give a lot of credit to Naomi for, for the way she received and accepted a foreigner from a pagan land a land of idol worshipers, a land polytheistic, many gods they serve, accepting her into that family. So, but Ruth, going back to Ruth's choice, it was relationship-centered, right? It was based on relationship. Um, being an outsider, she could, she, you know, it, she something about that relationship with her mother-in-law caused her to cling to her. Uh, we have the choice every day. You and I have the choice every day to embrace and love those who are different from us. And how are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? In our, again, kind of contrasting cultures here um, and the way many of us are, are raised if we've been part of church culture and, uh, and a, a faith community. Um, we, we know that most of us learned the basics of relating to God, the vertical piece, right? God to me, me to God. We've learned those ways and we know what to do if we want to have a relationship with God. Uh, Bible, Bible reading and prayer and, and, and the, the basics, the foundational things. But a lot of times we forget that there's a lateral piece, there's a horizontal piece of knowing God. By knowing Rudy, for example, I can know God better. By knowing Becca, I can know God more. God, if we're made in the image of God, can God allow me to know him more by knowing each one of you? Yes. Amen. And, but I think at times we forget that. And so Ruth speaks about two things here. She says two things. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. The vertical the horizontal, the lateral, right? Side by side. We're in this together, shoulder to shoulder. Two ways that she experienced God. And that made all the difference. And that caused her to make those choices. That's why we have life groups. That's why we do things to intentionally bring together people in community. Um, ways to connect, right? When we face a choice, we're pulled in different directions. How can we prioritize the relationships? in our lives, as Ruth did, because a choice can make all the difference. Uh, Robert Frost, the poet, I like a line in his, po- um, in his poem called The Road Not Taken. It says, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So Ruth's choice uh, also involved some degree of risk, right? Again, we've talked about her being a foreigner and what she could have faced. Going to Bethlehem, she could have ended up a servant, uh, a slave, basically. Um, who knows what her, you know, left, left um, to people there and their choices, she, it, she could have been in a, a really bad situation. Um, 
but her, rep, her, her rep, uh, reputation preceded her. And Boaz, we're told in, in, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 11, as she's out there gleaning in his field, Boaz, um, again, he's the kinsman redeemer. He's that relative that God is going to use to, bring, uh, to rescue Ruth eventually. But it says, uh, I've been told, this is Boaz speaking, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, her choice was a risky choice, right? Um, it was risky. She could have been rejected, um, altogether uh, in that culture and ended up not only a widow, widower but also a slave. But out of love for Naomi and Naomi's God, she was willing to accept the risk. What are we willing to forsake or to give up into, in order to embrace the new that God has for us? There's always those in those transition seasons, in those end endings, it's just, it's a process, and what am I willing to give up in order to embrace the new, to let go of in order to embrace the new that God has for me? Uh, we've been asked a lot of times by people as we served overseas for all those years, as, as missionaries, um, we've been asked about the sacrifices that we made, and um, you know, how, how did you do it? You know, you know, that's such a sacrifice. And, and often I think people are thinking in terms of a comfortable life, a bigger salary, a nice home, two cars, all the good things in life that we equate with, you know, the material things. But those aren't the sacrifices. We always go back to the relationships. We always answer in terms of the relationships. It's, it's about our grand, the, the sacrifice was that our, our children could only see their grandparents uh, every few years or whatever it was. It was about relationships that, that we left behind in order to embrace the new thing God had for us. And, um, you know, the rich, the rich young ruler, Jesus, he, when, he, when he encountered Jesus, Jesus said, uh, sell everything you have, give it away and come follow me. And we know that the rich young ruler, he wasn't willing to do that. He went away sad. He went away sad. And just after that, Peter says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? What do we get out of it? You know? And I think that's a valid question. Jesus didn't rebuke Peter for that question. He didn't say, how ungrateful I'm with you, aren't I? You've been, been walking with you these couple years. You know, you should be just, just, just be content. No, he actually gave him a really good answer. And he says, truly, I tell you, Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. We like to skip over that part. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. There's always a degree of reward. Jesus always, always connects sacrifice with reward. And Ruth's choice was a choice that was rewarded. And 
So I ask myself, am I willing to prioritize the relationships and be willing to risk? And that's how redemption works. We look at Jesus, he, he, he prioritized the relationship. God so loved the world. And then he embraced the risk that he sent his one and only son, our Lord Jesus. So both in the story of Ruth and in the story of Jesus, we see this risk and reward play out. And it's all about legacy. You have in you a legacy to pass on to those, whether you are a spiritual parent to people or you're an actual parent or grandparent or a mentor or an or a employer or a, co or a colleague. You know, there's so many ways we can pass on our legacy. Um, but we don't necessarily go about thinking, I'm going to create legacy. I'm going to but we do intentionally make choices day after day after day that build one upon another and that in itself creates a legacy and God weaves a beautiful story into that. So there's this defini definition of legacy on the slide there, but you know, it's something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor from the past. But it's not by osmosis that this happens. It's by intentional choice. And um, so Ruth was rewarded because she made a choice that was God-honoring and was worth the risk. It was rewarded. And as a result, as we're going to see, an incredible legacy took place, unfolded um, as we go on in the story. So come on up, Eve. When Tim was, talk when Tim was talking about risk, talking about risk, He, um, or I was reflecting on the song, actually during worship is when I was reflecting on the song, but the, um, this prayer, it's really a prayer, you know, um, Jesus bring new wine out of me. We're praying that as a prayer. We're singing it as a prayer. But if you caught the words about the press, pressing and the crushing part, I mean, I don't know. We sang and prayed that part too, right? <laughs> Anybody want to take it back? I do, kind of. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, uh, you know, yeah, then you take this perfect, you know, a grape. I love grapes. So just to take this perfect little piece of fruit and then it's got to be pressed and crushed and all this destroyed basically and then stuck in a dark barrel for a few decades and then you get the wine. You know what I mean? It's like not this, the process itself is, um, yeah, ruining the grape. <laughs> so it can be something else, you know, but anyway. A random reflection on risk. Um, and then legacy. Because what Tim's saying, you know, about the, these choices that we make day after day, and um, I just want to try to communicate this well. But I was saying before, you know, we want, we want to honor all women today, and we do honor all women today, but my mom's here, so I want to honor my mom, who gave me the crying gene, <coughs> obviously, and uh, Tim's mom as well, who's in Chico, but for both of these women, we, we have been given a godly legacy that we get to pass on to and are passing on to our kids and now to our grandson, Valor. And uh, 
I feel blessed to be really sort of this rare um, breed, let's say. I feel like it's become more and more rare uh, to be raised in a Christian home. So mom and dad weren't raised in Christian homes. But they came to Christ right around 30, and that's when Natalie and I were like two and three. So we really don't remember anything but a Christian home. So I got to accept Jesus when I was four years old. And now 44 more years has passed, and I've gotten to walk with the Lord for 44 years. Yeah, those are my choices. I chose to follow Jesus and to stick with him all these years. But so much of that is the legacy that mom and dad uh, let us and led us to live, if that makes sense, because they're modeling it, and they're uh, giving us those opportunities, and they are living for Jesus in a way that makes me want to live for Jesus and makes me want to find a spouse that wants to live for Jesus and walk that out all the days of our lives and and pray for and see our kids do that same thing too. So again, I I'm blessed by that and I feel like that's a lot of what I do as a counselor that um in me that feels so much pain for other people that didn't have a mom and a dad like I have. So they missed that, but they, their heart still craves that. They still want to live in connection with people who are stable and loving and amazing and strong and all the things that my parents are, and so they seek that out in other people. So I just say to you and encourage you today that we, as the body of Christ, get to be that for each other, and that there are people that the Lord is has led you to, I know already, and will lead you to, that need your legacy. They need you to live out legacy in front of them and with them and journey with them in the way that Ruth and Naomi journeyed together so they don't have to do it alone, and they don't have to walk through grief and hard seasons on their own. So I encourage you in that. And now we want to look at redemption. So it doesn't look always how we think it will, right? And for me, as a pretty much impatient kind of person who's grown in patience a little bit over the years, hopefully, I always want this redemption thing to happen faster than it, than it usually does. But let's look at the... Ruth, you know, she is listed in the genealogy of Jesus, which I love. She's not a Jew. So there's a book in the Bible that's her named after her. It's her whole story, even though she's not a Jew. She's listed in the genealogy of Jesus um, as a Moabite. And I think that is just such a beautiful picture of the miracle of God's grace. Because he's saying, this is a picture for you. And it's in the Bible so you can read it and learn from it because that's what my grace does. That's how deep it runs. That's how endless it is. And the Moabite ancestry, I'll just read you a little bit because I just, I love this stuff, this part of it where we can just dig deep into the culture and history that surrounds everything that's in the Bible. But her ancestry has its origins, the, the Moabite ancestry has its origins in the incest committed between Lot and his oldest daughter, you have to look that story up later, 
But the Moabites were not known to worship Yahweh. They worshiped their own gods. They were polytheistic. So that's like a bunch of gods. They're like, this is a god. That's a god. Let's worship this. Let's worship that. And occasionally offered human sacrifices to their idol gods. As a result, God prohibited the Jews from intermingling and intermarrying with Moabites. But as we know, Naomi's son married a Moabite. So he actually disobeyed God's law in marrying Ruth. But God's saying, I can redeem that. As the plot thickens and we look at the backstory in Ruth, we see that the, according to the biblical record, it appears that Boaz's father was Salmon and his mother was Rahab. So we look back at Rahab, that's Joshua chapter 2. She was a prostitute. So now the Lord, you know, God is saying, no, I can redeem even that. She was another non Jewish woman, she was a Canaanite prostitute. She and her family were the only survivors of Israel's conquest against Jericho. They marched around, if you remember, seven times. The walls fell. She and her family were the only ones saved because they had hid the Jewish spies and helped them escape. So we find these unlikely heroes, these women, in very unlikely places and from very unlikely backgrounds. And God says, that's all right. So there was so much more in the works than this fairy tale romance, right? We know the end of the story and a little spoiler alert with, you know, Boaz is going to come save the day. But it's really more of the Hollywood scandal stuff right now, right? And I think we all have the Hollywood scandal parts of our stories. We don't all have fairy tale stories. That's, that's not where we live. That's only in Disney movies. But actually, I was, looking, I was thinking about some of the Disney princesses. Sorry, this is another random reflection. But, you know, Cinderella was a slave to her stepmom, and Snow White got poisoned because, you know, the apple and the, the stepmom didn't even want her in the castle. And Rapunzel, oh my goodness, I, I read that one, and I was just like, the original one, the grim fairy tale version, super scary super scary. So the, you know, we, we end up with the picture of the princess in the fancy dress, but those girls had scary stories. Okay. So as we know, the, the union of Boaz and Ruth produced a son. Again, spoiler alert there. His name was Obed. He had a son named Jesse. He had a son named David, greatest king Israel ever knew. Then you go a few generations more and you get Jesus, okay? So this amazing family line comes from, this amazing legacy comes from this unlikely place and this kind of place where that's the parts of our story, stories that we don't want to talk about or we're told not to talk about it, right? We're told you must keep this secret or we hear stories growing up and those stories are not told because... Who wants to be shamed or blamed or, or feel like, you know, that, yeah, we can't talk about whoever that was or whatever. But what we want to do is say, okay, what, what is there in my story that God has redeemed? And also, what still needs to be redeemed? What is waiting for redemption in my story? And that can be in the, in the family line. You know, the, the Bible talks about generational blessings and curse, curses being passed on, right, to the fourth generation. What kinds of things in our stories need to be broken, need to be ended, need to be healed, need to be mourned well? 
going back to the start, but mourned and healed and moved past because we don't want that to be part of the legacy that gets passed on, right? We get to choose that. It's back to choices. So I love that part. So if you just imagine the stories that Boaz heard growing up, you know, we marched and the wall fell and there we were all huddled inside and, you know, all these amazing things that happened. Having a mother who'd been a foreigner and a harlot yet was grafted into the olive tree of Israel by the grace of God affected the way Boaz knew Ruth, viewed Ruth, sorry, that day as he saw her gleaning in the fields. He pictured her a certain way because of his family legacy, because he didn't have a filter that said, oh, she's a, you know, whatever, just like a parasite. She's, she's there gleaning and she needs help. That's how he saw her. Boaz saw something familiar and dear in a woman who had left her family, her nation, and her gods to embrace Naomi, Naomi's nation, and Naomi's God. It seems Boaz was uniquely prepared by God for Ruth and Ruth for Boaz. And this slide shows uh, just a definition of redeem is to compensate for the faults or as bad aspects of something or someone to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment, rescue, retrieve, regain, recover, rec reclaim, repossess, have something returned. So I just want to encourage you to take some time to think about that the fact that redemption can come from the most unexpected places, and it often is a process that takes time, more time than sometimes we're willing to give it, but that patience and perseverance and hopefulness, even in the face of waiting for that redemption, I think is key. Um, we don't fully know the timeline, but according to studies that have been done, it looks, um, or the, sorry, the biblical timeline and chronology of this story, it's estimated that Ruth was in her 20s when she left Boab, uh, Moab, sorry, and so she, Naomi would have been, uh, say, early 40s, uh, and it was around 90 years old when she gave birth to her son, and so that means Naomi was 120, so they that part of the redemption, the family line continuing and all that that meant for them, they waited a really, really long time for that part of the redemption, right? And I haven't waited 70 years for any of my redemptions because I'm only 48 years old, but what if, the, what if I am? What if I do? Am I okay with God's timeline? On things? Am I okay with the way he does things? Do I trust him? So how long have you been waiting for something to be rescued, retrieved, regained, recovered, or reclaimed? Here's a quote from Alicia Britt-Scholey in a book, 40 Days of Decrease. Most of us will not see the resurrection of our dreams in three days. She's referring to Three days Jesus was dead, and then he raised from the dead. And that was an amazing, obviously, redemption story. But in fact, some of our dreams are sown for future generations to reap. Even then, obedience is never a waste. It's an investment in a future we cannot see. When we dream with God, our dreams, even in burial, are not lost, 
they are planted. God never forgets the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. John 12, 24. What grows from the painful planting is God's business. I just love that part, especially about obedience is never wasted. It's an investment in a future we cannot see and how some of our dreams are sown for future generations to reap. And I feel like that is part of our family legacy as well because as mom and dad have been obedient and have invested that in even some of their hopes and dreams, I'm living that now and will, Lord willing, for years to come. My husband, my kids, my grandson, we, we live in the... Uh, I want to say, you know, wake of and path of that obedience, that blessing. So we can leave that legacy and, and strive to leave that legacy for our kids because we want, you know, these, <laughs> the, the hopes and dreams sown for future generations to reap. I feel like um, now we're told and these last, you know, I don't know, last decade or so, especially told, you know, you... I'm supposed to dream my dreams and I'm supposed to live those out and it's for me. Do you know what I mean? Here and now. But if we're looking at God's timeline of things and how long things take sometimes, I might not see all of my dreams realized, but by God's grace, my kids and my grandkids will because that's how his economy works. That's how trusting him works. He wants it to be to the fourth and fifth generation. He wants those blessings to be visited on, the, on down the line. And so that's how redemption is this big, long trail of tracing God's hand, even when we can't see or know how it's working, of tracing God's hand and trusting the outcome, trusting the, the ending to him, which often is actually a new beginning. Here comes Tim. <laughs> yeah, and you, you see how this redemptive process is both an, a one, an instant, happens in an instant, and, it hap and it's also a process. So redemption, we're all new creatures in Christ. We've been redeemed instantly, forgiven, justified by faith. God's grace has saved us and put us in a place a relationship, of redemptive relationship with him. But then we have this process. And that's kind of what we're talking about today, this whole process of redemption. But new, redemption leads to new beginnings. And so we're going to kind of, uh, kind of settle on this a little bit today as we wrap up the time today is new beginnings. Um, sometimes, you know, I think we must, we think that new beginnings always come later, but actually we're really in God's timetable living them out in the sense that they're determined by our choices. So we're just kind of just setting on the path. Just putting ourselves on the path represents a new beginning. Because without the step, without the first step, and then the next step, there are no new beginnings. So we see Ruth taking that step here. Um, and I'd like to contrast these, these, two, these two verses here. So we'll go back to Ruth 1. And what was the state of these women when they came into Bethlehem? And what was going on there? It says, Ruth 1, verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived there, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? So there's all this gossip, all this chatter. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, there were, there were rumors going around, whatever it was. 
um, being associated with foreigners. Um, there were, I'm sure, all kinds of stuff going on there. But then let's fast forward to chapter 4, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. A child is being talked about here. Ruth's child, right? The one that Ruth bore to. But it's interesting. It's, it's talking about Naomi here. Naomi, the mother-in-law, she took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Not Ruth has a son. They said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we see this redemptive process play out, kind of have its kind of come full circle here. And um, there's, always, there's an ending and a new beginning. And that's the way scripture is too. As we look at the stories throughout scripture, God started with a beginning, actually, didn't he? In Genesis. And then we come to the end of the story and there's another ending, but a fresh new beginning in the book of Revelation. And um, God, God is weaving his grace throughout the Bible, throughout the stories of the Bible, even through these genealogies, these, these uh, scandalous <laughs> you know, family stories. You know? And God is doing, uh, do, working his, uh, putting together a beautiful story. He loves to redeem sinners. He loves to produce something beautiful out of sordid family backgrounds. He loves to make foreigners his children and reconcile his enemies. He loves to make all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Naomi comes into, Jer into Bethlehem, going back to the beginning, and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She said, I went away full. I came back empty. But what's she holding in her hands at the end of the story? A baby. No longer empty-handed, but holding a son that is in the lineage of Jesus, our King and Messiah. What an awesome, beautiful story that God, he, he takes and unravels things and puts it all together beautifully in his grace. So new beginnings. Um, and I'm going to have Bill come up on the keyboard, and we're just going to take a moment to let God seal this in our hearts, however he you feel led to, um, allow him to. Um, Psalm 126, 126, verse 6. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Seeds to sow. Eve said, I think, in the, in the, in the first service today, she doesn't know how her, her parents had so many seeds to sow. They're still sowing. We never, we never, God always puts something in our hands to sow. So there's, there's seeds, they're minute little things, yeah? But then there's some weeping going on there, there's some struggle, there's some hardship, there's some ups and downs, and then God, in his goodness, fills us with sheaves, you know, a harvest. And uh, God is good that way. And Jesus today is our kinsman redeemer. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer for Ruth. He was in that family line. He was the one in the family line who was able to do 
what no one else could do, really. Actually, there was another person in the family line, but they, they said, I can't do it. And then Boaz was next in line. That's also an interesting piece. And he said, I, I'll do, you know, so Boaz, Ruth needed, bottom line is Ruth needed a rescuer. She needed someone to rescue her. And Boaz stepped in. You and I needed someone to rescue us. And Jesus stepped in. He's our redeemer today. Let's stand together. That Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer is a legal term for one who has the obligation to redeem a relative in serious difficulty. Exactly what Boaz did for Ruth and what Jesus does for us. And you know what's beautiful? If you go into Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says about Jesus, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his relatives. Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with his children today. He's actually pleased and wants to meet us where we're at today. And he bought, bought us, he made us his bride. He's the kinsman redeemer of all who call on him in humility and in faith. So I wanna encourage you today, if something has spoken to you um, in this message and you just wanna to talk to God about something, you wanna take it to the altar today, we will be up here to pray with you or if you just wanna find a private place and, and ask and, and just meet with the Lord on that, this is the place and God is inviting you to do that and I'm inviting you to come and um, we're going to be up here. But as, uh, let's just go ahead and we're going to just uh, pray God's blessing over you this week. And uh, again, happy Mother's Day. We hope you have a blessed week and a blessed day today. Thanks for coming out. Um, and uh, again, the altar's open, but let's just pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. As we are marveling, just marvel at your grace as we look at the story of Ruth today and what you can do. Lord, with our failings, with our shortcomings, with our family histories, with whatever we bring, you're able by your grace to create beauty from ashes. So we're thankful for that. Give us hope and encouragement as we go today, knowing that going back into those hard places, you're with us and um, you want to do something new. You're a God of new beginnings and we trust you today to help us to see where you're working, to embrace you in those transition places and in those hard places and to embrace others as well. And um, we love you today and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.